Uh, I want to start off by sharing with you an experience that I have had uh, numerous times throughout my ministry, but an experience that until recently I did not fully understand. Uh, in Boston, every year, a few times a year, I will get a text or a phone call from somebody in the congregation that says, hey, I want to get together. And whenever I get those messages, immediately I, I would get a pit in my stomach. Uh, you may not realize this, but most of the time, you don't text to hang out. <laughs> Usually you, you reach out to me when something is up. And uh, when, it, when, that, when I would get that message for the longest time, what I would begin to fear was this person's going to leave the church. I just start to think about that. I start to, to mull over it. Um, now, of course, no pastor wants people to, to leave the church, but these particular moments were different for me. Sometimes they would really send me into an emotional tailspin as I would start to consider it. Um, this happened last year around this time. One of our, our deacons got a, a great new job on the other side of the country, and he texted me to meet up, and he told me about this opportunity, and, and I expressed my support. I was in some sense, is really happy for the opportunity that God had given their family. Um, but after we left that meeting, I was just overwhelmed with grief. I started imagining our church falling apart. You know, how are we going to do it without this person? How are we going to keep going? I, I got genuinely depressed in the aftermath. Now, it's one thing to be sad when good people move on from your church, but it's another thing to fall into despair. Whatever was going on in those interactions would trigger something really deep within me. And that deep reaction was a warning sign. It was a signal that there was something else underneath that moment. That my reaction was, was way beyond the event that I was finding out about. And over the last few months and years, as I've been able to examine that moment and the dozens of other moments just like it, there's this clear pattern that emerges in me. I found out that I was really desperately afraid of people leaving. And not just leaving the church, but I was desperately afraid of people leaving me. And so as I look back on that, as I look back even further on my life and, and on my family of origin and on my past, I saw that the way I felt in that, that moment when the deacon told me he was leaving wasn't a whole lot different from the way I felt back in middle school when the, I felt like the cool kids were rejecting me. It wasn't a whole lot different from the way I felt when I was a small child and I would talk to my father and, and ask him if he would promise that I could live at home forever. In other words, I realized that the church and my ability to lead the church was being impacted by some baggage that had nothing to do with it. It was stuff that I had carried in from my past. And I'm sharing this today because I want to talk about the power of the past in our lives. I want to talk about the power of the past to impact the way we follow Jesus the way we 
experience, or the way we fail to experience, his glory in our life and here in the church. Today's passage highlights this dynamic. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. This is the famous passage about God's call to Abram, who would become Abraham. It's the beginning of a covenant, this promise that will last for generations. And the climax of this promise is when Jesus comes, who is the blessing that blesses all the nations of the earth. But as we read this right now, I want you to pay particular attention to the beginning of the passage. Notice the context that is included for us in Abraham's call. Let's read it together. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram took Nahor, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So today as we look at this passage, I want us to see that when God brings us into his new family, we don't lose our old one. And that means we have work to do in order to fully embrace the dynamics of the family of God. But as we grow in that, we're going to experience God's promises more deeply. So let's talk about this. When God brings us into his new family, we don't lose our old one. Uh, scripture talks about the generational nature of our faith and of our sin. It talks about this a lot. Maybe you remember in Exodus 34, where Moses reveals himself to God and he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then he talks about how he shows kindness to thousands of generations. But he also punishes iniquity to the third and fourth generation. Or maybe you remember in Acts where Peter, he's preaching the gospel for the first time and he says, this is a promise for you and for your children. There's a generational aspect to the way scripture talks about our faith. But in the 21st century, especially in the American church, we don't think that way. We have a difficult time connecting to our, our past. Instead, we tend to preach a very individualistic version of salvation. 
Jesus promises to wash our sins away, right? And then we believe that, well, since we've had our sins washed away, since we've been set free from our sin, well, our past is over. It no longer has any power over us. But that's really not the case. It's just not true. If you look in Ephesians, Paul explains more of this idea about the Christian's new identity in the family of God. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The basic gospel message is that, that the moment you believe, you are legally transferred. So you used to be strangers and aliens. You were separated from God. You had no hope in the world. You were separated from Christ. But because Christ has come and he's sacrificed himself for us, by faith we are now members of God's household. We are sons and daughters now. We are loved. We get a seat at the table. We can come to him in freedom. But just because our legal status has changed, it doesn't mean we are instantly transformed. It doesn't mean that just because we now belong at the table, we now know how to live like members of the household of God. I mean, it's, it's a simple idea, right? You remember, it's the Beverly Hillbillies. I know that's kind of like a really super old illustration, but that's the, the idea, right? Just these people, they're, they're backwoods people, they strike oil, they get rich, and then all of a sudden they move into a mansion at Beverly Hills. But just because they, you move into a, a mansion and you have millions of dollars, it doesn't mean you've lost your taste for possum soup or whatever. That stuff is still with you. And it's the same with us. Just because we have been changed, it doesn't mean all the impact of our past has been erased. You see that over and over again in the story of Abraham, in his life and in the life of his descendants. In our passage that we just read, he responds to God's call. He, he responds to this call to leave your father's house and go and be, become a great nation. And he believes that. In this moment, Abraham believes. He believes God's going to make him a great nation. And from this point on, in the rest of Scripture, in the rest of human history, Abraham is associated, he is defined by his intimate relationship with God. But, as you read about Abraham's life, you see he continues to struggle. He knows God's promised to build him into a great nation. He knows God has told him he will be the head of this covenant family that will last forever. But there's still in his mind is the remnants of the old faithless ways in him. Abraham is 75 years old when this takes place. That means for the vast majority of his life, he had been a pagan. He was a member of the family of Terah, not the family of God. And that still shapes the way he views the world. God promised promised him that he was going to have a son, but Abram remembers that he's an old man. And he remembers how old his father lasted, how long his father lasted before he died. And, and, and he had to ask, well, can I really have a child in my old age? 
He belongs to God's household, but he is also shaped by his Mesopotamian culture. This culture where the most important thing was to have a male heir. And you're doomed if you make it to your old age and you don't have someone set up to inherit all of your possessions. And so despite his new reality, despite his relationship with the Lord, he, he reacts faithlessly. He has a child with another woman. Another example of this in Abraham's life comes when you see that eventually God does deliver on his promises. Eventually God does give him a child. And that child begins this great nation. But pretty quickly, even though this new family is not a pagan family, it's a holy, godly family, there's still sin all throughout it. You see Abram deceive the Pharaoh and lie, saying that his wife is actually his sister. And then the next generation, you see Isaac do the same thing. And then the generation after that, you see Rebekah encouraging Jacob to deceive Esau. And then the generation after that, you see Joseph's brothers lying about what happened when they sold their brother into slavery. In this most holy and godly family, pretty quickly, you see four generations where they are impacted by this generational sin of deceit. When God calls us into his kingdom, we remain shaped and impacted by our earthly kingdom. And that's important for us to get into our heads. We need to recognize that if we, as we learn about what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Discipleship is the process of becoming more like Christ. The process of increasingly experiencing his power, the power of this new reality that we're now part of his household. Discipleship is about us moving from the, the mentality of strangers and aliens and exiles into a life of being the sons and daughters of the king. It's about leaving the generations of Terah and joining the generations of God's family. Or the way that Pete Scazzaro put it, he, he says that discipleship is the process of moving out of the sinful patterns of your family of origin and into the holy patterns of the family of God. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about discipleship. That's what it is. It is a process of moving out of the sinful patterns that we've learned in this world and then moving into the holy patterns of belonging to the household of God. And that, it really is a process. When God brings us into this new family, we have a process to undergo. We're not, we don't instantly lose our old family. But the problem is many of us, most of us in fact, live for years as Christians before we ever even think about this. We live for years before we ever consider the impact our past may be having on us and on our church. And that brings us to the next point. That means we've got work to do. If we're going to figure this out, we have work to do. Melissa and I, uh, this summer, we began participating in the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. 
It's a, a cross-cultural training program. It's like three years long. And at our first session, they split us up. It was, it was about 20 or 30 people. They split us up into four groups and gave us each a deck of cards and instructions. And we all at our tables learned how to play this card game. We, we, we did a few rounds of it until we got comfortable. And then they had one person from each table stand up and move to another table. And the only rule now is you cannot talk about the rules. Now, of course, they had given everyone slightly different rules. That was, this is the point of the exercise, right? And so we're sitting there silently trying to play this game, but each of us, we have different assumptions about what the rules are. And pretty quickly, there was confusion. And sometimes there was conflict. People were upset because we all had assumptions about how the game was supposed to be played, but we weren't talking about it. The church is kind of like that. The church is a family. Scripture says that all over the place. It compares the church to a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have mothers and fathers in the faith. We have children who we are trying to teach the doctrines of our faith and, and raise them up to know the Lord. We, but we all come into this family from a different family. We come in from our family of origin, the family that we were, were born into and grew up around. And all of those families, without exception, every one of them, no matter how whole or how broken it may have been, had a set of rules. And those were rules that we absorbed. And those are rules that we have brought with us into the church. But we don't talk about them. In fact, I would argue that most of us, we don't even recognize them. We don't know what they are. And so as a result, a lot of times, churches are a place of conflict. Churches are a place of unmet expectations, a place of frustration, and sometimes a place of deep division and pain. If we ever want that to change, if we want our church family to reach its potential, if we want to grow individually and as members of God's household, then we need to be honest about that stuff. And that's going to take work, because like I said, most of us are unaware of those things. We don't know what we're bringing with us into the church. We all have different experiences. We all have different assumptions. We were raised with different values, many of us in different contexts, in different places. We have different traumas that we've lived through in our lives. So what do we do? How do we start to explore that? How do we start to understand the impact the past may be having on us? Well, I have a few suggestions here. It's certainly not a comprehensive list, um, but I want to throw those out right now. One is, I think all of us, as we come into the church, as we're living our daily lives, we need to be looking for red flags. I shared just a second ago my own experience of a red flag where someone told me they're leaving the church and instantly I go into a state of despair and depression. It wasn't right that I was just sad. It was an extreme reaction. I was deeply impacted by this thing. And that was a sign that maybe something was going on in my heart. Maybe there was something bigger there that I needed to dig into. And as I followed that feeling of despair, I found that there was stuff there. 
that in fact there was an unmet desire in my life to be known and valued, to be accepted. And I was experiencing the departure of this person as a verdict on me. I wasn't worth sticking around for. And then when I saw that, I was able to ask, when did I start doing that? When did I start associating these connections in the world with my value? Well, the truth was, it happened long before I became a pastor. That stuff happened way before I knew any of you guys. And being known and valued, that's a pretty good desire, right? That's not, that's not a sin, to want to be known and valued. But it's something that God is meant to satisfy. It's not something that any human being can really fulfill. God's the only one who really knows us the way we want to be known. God's the only one who can value us and give us a sense of value that, that lasts beyond any circumstances of the world. So I started to see that about myself just from that one moment, just from that red flag. Now, maybe for you, um, it's something different. It probably is something different. Maybe you get upset when people don't respond to your text messages fast enough. Or maybe you believe that it's your job to defend and protect the other people in your life. Or maybe there's just certain tasks that immobilize you, that just make it impossible for you to move. Or maybe you just, maybe you overwork constantly and you find yourself feeling anxious when you stop. When I say look for the red flags, that's what I mean. Look for those moments in your life where you have extreme emotions, fear, anxiety, anger, sadness, whatever it is, and then ask, what's going on here? And where is this coming from? So that's the first thing. Look for red flags. Secondly, consider your defense mechanisms. This past year, I I was blessed to be able to do a lot of different discipleship programs. I read a bunch of books by Christian authors and Christian psychologists and things, and what I found was that all of them communicated a very similar idea. Uh, they, They all talked about that as we grow up, we learn to behave in certain self-protective ways so that we can survive in the world. David Binner, he calls it the false self. Pete Scazzaro, he talks about facing your shadow. Uh, Larry Bolden, who ran the Wellspring program, he talked about your your pose, the, the false picture of yourself that you give to the world. But we all have these things, these defense mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves. And if we're really going to grow as a family, if we are going to be able to understand each other and love each other, then we're going to have to do the hard work of discovering that stuff about ourselves and naming what our defense mechanisms really are so we could actually start breaking free of some of those patterns. For me, I think I'm a performer. I often do things so that people will accept me and approve of me. And just putting it that way, it sounds kind of okay. But the problem comes when I start to be dishonest about what I really think or what I really feel. When I avoid conflict 
that I think is going to be painful so I don't damage a relationship. In the long term, that way of operating actually really hurts all of you. And that stuff, like I said, it started a long time before I knew any of you. It has nothing to do, really, with the church. But I brought that in here with me. And I assure you that you've brought some stuff in as well. And if you could take the time to discover whatever that is, it would change our church. Now, it won't happen quickly. It's probably going to take some hard work to figure those things out. It'll take, you, may, you may need to honestly sit down with other people who know you well so that they can help you begin to see some of the things that you tend to do. But that's the second thing. We need to consider how we have, have developed these defense mechanisms. And third, uh, like I said, we need to look at our family of origin and our past trauma. Abraham's genealogy was more than a list of names. To him, it was a series of relationships. It was events, stories that had impacted him and shaped his life. And it's the same with our families. The culture of our families, it impacts us, it shapes us every single day. What your family valued will impact the things that you value in the kingdom of God. And it would be wise for you to go back and, and ask some questions. You know, I have some, uh, some basic ones up here. Things like, how did your family talk about feelings, if they did at all? How was sexuality talked about or not talked about? What were the implied messages you received? Were there any family secrets? What was considered success in your family? When I was thinking about this this week, I realized that my family's version of success has had a profound impact on our church, on the way that I went about planting it, the things that I valued as we processed it. I had never thought about it until I saw this list. How was money handled in your family? How was spirituality fa- handled? What were your relationships with your extended family like? How did your ethnicity shape you? Were there any heroes or heroines in your family, any scapegoats or losers? What defined those people? What kind of addictions may have existed in your family? There's dozens of questions like this. These are just a few sample ones. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what I want you to know is that the answer to these questions all have a silent voice in this room. Do you hear that? The answer to these questions all have a silent voice in your life and in this room. And if we want to grow... We're going to have to figure those things out. And the last suggestion here is that you should really give yourself time to do this. It's going to take a lifetime to unpack these things. And once you start doing it, you're going to find that it's, it's not very easy. The process of moving out of the sinful habits you've always had from your family of origin, from the world, and then moving into the family of God, it really is a lifelong process that will not be completed until you are with Jesus forever you're going to find some of these things are really deeply rooted. And that when you find them, when you discover them, they'll lose some of their power, but they're not going to go away. You'll still find yourself slipping back into them. Um, So, we need to do the work. But the last thing I want to say is that as we do it, 
as we uncover the power of our past in our lives, our experience of God's promises here is going to deepen. I've kind of been nervous about this sermon, to be honest, as I've been preparing it this week. I just recognize that like, these aren't common subjects to bring up in a Sunday sermon. I've been worried about how you all might react. I can even imagine some people saying, well, Pastor, it just sounds like you're trying to say you need to blame all your problems on your parents. And that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe that's what some of you already do. Um, oh, hi, Mom. <laughs> um, it's not what I'm saying. It's not about blame. It's about acknowledging the reality of who you are and how you live. Because we are all sinners, that means that even the best families, even the healthiest, most righteous, most whole God-fearing families have dealt us some wounds. Our past traumas, they have shaped the way we live, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. But unless we're able to sit before God and let Him shed some light on that, unless we're able to begin to see how those things are shaping us, unless we are committed to seeing the baggage that we're bringing into this room, we are doomed to keep running into it, to keep hitting these invisible walls in ourselves with each other, to keep running into this conflict because we have these unspoken rules, these unmet expectations and wounds that we don't know anything about. But on the other hand, if we were to do it, as we increasingly discover this stuff, as we name and we understand these hidden, sinful patterns in our lives that are at work amongst us, man, if, that, if we could name that stuff, we would find a new freedom, a new joy. We would be able to communicate with each other, to love each other in completely new ways. Think about how much more grace you would be able to have for someone if you could really see all the, the mess inside of yourself. If you knew the depths of your own weakness, how much more grace you could show to someone else. Instead of assuming that they're coming to you with bad motives, you could have the freedom to ask some questions. And not only asking them questions, you could ask yourself questions. You could say, what's causing this reaction inside of me that's making me so upset. The Ephesians passage we read, it goes on to say, after it mentions that we're members of the household of God, Paul says, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul reminds us that the promise we read way back in Genesis, the promise made to Abraham, is a promise that includes us. We have been brought into God's family. 
We have brought, been grafted in to God's covenant people, even though we were outsiders, even though we had no business being a part of it. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul tells us that he removed every power of sin that could keep us away from God, and he broke down every wall that can divide us from each other. And then he ends with this really beautiful promise that everyone who has been redeemed by Christ will be made one. That means the fate of the church is not conflict. The fate of the church is not disunity and division and just inevitably being torn apart because it's full of sinful people. No, as a matter of fact, he tells us that that as we pursue repentance and faith, as we expose our hearts, as we vulnerably expose our sin that is in the midst of us, more and more, we are built into a place where God dwells. Folks, every organization in the world experiences division, right? Every business, every club, every sports team, every band, right? We all have to deal with the baggage that individual people bring into it. But only the church has this. Only the church has the promise Only the church has the power to turn divided people from millions of broken families and backgrounds into something glorious and united. Only the Holy Spirit can transform a group of conflicted sinners into a family that preaches and models unity to the whole world. And that could be us. That's my point. This could be us. No. This will be us. This is a promise, you understand? Jesus has guaranteed this will be us. So what are we waiting for? Our experience of this promise will only deepen as we surrender, as we open up our lives to one another, as we expose our past and our hurts as we see the shame that lives inside of us and the unspoken expectations that we bring into the present. As we let those things come to light and we ask Jesus to heal them. And as we tell our brothers and sisters about it so that they can help us, so that they can walk alongside of us. So that's how I want to close I want to wrap up by just asking you to reflect on those questions. What baggage might you be bringing with you into the family of God? What unspoken expectations might you have that you are putting on others? What past hurts are shaping the present reality of our life together? What unattended to pains might be keeping you from knowing the fullness of God's love for you? Let's take a moment and let's silently reflect on that, and then I'll close us in prayer. We come into the church as whole people, 
There aren't parts of our life that we're supposed to leave outside of the door. There aren't subjects that are beyond the reach. And although this subject of our our past and our wounds is maybe something we don't talk about very often, Lord, it is an area of our life where you claim sovereignty and dominion and power. A place where you have promised us freedom. And so I want to pray for us that you would give us the freedom to examine ourselves. That you would give us the freedom to start exploring these deep hurts. And I pray that what would be replaced is deep healing. A deep experience of your presence and love for us and a deep unity that impacts the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.